It's a busy morning. It is, David. I'm going to start straight away. Go. Because the time is after the wars. The place could be any city with bombed-out suburbs. And these bombed-out areas accommodate the homeless. Mary Borsellino has written about this and her book is called Thrive. Welcome. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. Okay, so you've given us a society in the future with a subset called Thrives. I have, yes. I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind explaining. Sure. Well, I can, I'll read you um, a section. This is uh, a letter that one of the characters' mothers gets when he's quite young um, about him. Dear Madam, your son has evidenced a failure to thrive. He's being relocated in order to allow for a more appropriate resource allocation to take place. As compensation, you are entitled to government-supported prenatal and neonatal care for your next pregnancy. Please call the following numbers for further information on this incentive scheme. We wish you better luck in the future. Mm, little <laughs> lack of maternal uh, welfare there. Yeah. <laughs> So these these babies, they're defects and disorders caused by radiation leaks or chemicals in the soil. And it's an economic government. You know, the cost of nurturing this child would be an economic failure. Mm. So um, the prospects don't, doesn't warrant, warrant the time involved, so remove the kid. Yep. So what happens to these kids? <laughs> um, that there's Well, it's sort of that there's a... There's a community of sorts. I mean, there's an inc incredible resource scarcity among the people who are homeless. So they can't, you know, compassion is difficult, but at the same time they do take care of the children up to a certain age. You know, it reminded me of Dick and Dickensian <laughs> uh, factory workers. Yeah. You know, these young kids were all working and looking after themselves, yeah. basically. Well, I mean, that's the thing, that um, a lot of things in Thrive that might seem at first to be science fiction in some way, I actually drew directly from the real world that it happens somewhere in the world now. But these kids, a lot of these <laughs> kids have ports. Yes. So better explain what the ports are. Um, the port, I, I wanted it to be almost this David Cronenberg style, you know, it's it's a... A, a biomechanical sort of implant um, that you have that allows your energy to be turned into battery energy, basically. It makes you a living battery, that things can be plugged into you and siphon off your energy, um, literally commodifying people. And it's only the people who are in need of money who um, get ported because if you don't need to make a buck, you don't need to sell your energy in that way. And then we have Olivia, <laughs> quite a different uh, child. Yep. Tell us about her background. Um, well, she's a, from a much more privileged background to the Thrives. Again, drawing very much on um, countries that exist in the world today, uh, that there are these enormous wealth disparities, um, but that being of the, this privileged class means that you've got to be protected from being kidnapped, um, extortion and, and things and like that. And that's exactly yeah. where the story starts. Yes, yes. Olivia is kidnapped. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we very first off, we know that. We mm. know that she's confident mm. her parents will pay for her release. Mm -hmm. But it's her jailer. It's, it's a girl, Hannah, who's mm. not much older than Olivia herself. Mm. And Hannah says, 
Well, says to Olivia, the most astonishing thing, mm. you won't get any books unless... Oh, yeah, it's... The, um, you won't get any yeah, food. Any food, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> unless yeah. she reads books. Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's Hannah's way of... Because um, a lot of the characters... Because their language is has been shifted in such a way that it commodifies people so much, often the only way that they can connect with... Um, emotions that we take for granted in our language is through books and literature of the past and books are very much monitored of what's appropriate to read or not and in their time and um and Hannah wants Olivia to sort of speak the same language as her to be able to connect with her emotionally because of course the the major problem with class divisions like the one in their society is that people can't see that um, the ones that seem other are actually incredibly similar to them. So by sharing books with her, it's a way to share experience and emotion with her. Mary, you must have had a lovely time here because I think <laughs> some of the books on um, Olivia's book list mm. may be some of your favourites. <laughs> some of them are, yeah. I tried to give her ones that were special to to her, but there's certainly ones that I was able to draw out a a profundity from my own experience reading them. We had so. Stephen King. Yep. We had uh, Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Very necessary. <laughs> Lolita was a little bit of an in- interesting throw-in. Yeah, that was because I feel like Lolita gets... <laughs> I don't want to say Lolita gets shafted, but she gets shoved aside by the narrative a lot. Um, as a person, that there's not a clear understanding of her as this victimised teenage girl in the story and so um, it's there because yeah again it's about you know teenage girls trying to find their narrative and not be subject to the narratives of say their fathers and stepfathers and bosses and things like that. And just in complete contrast (laughs) there's John Maynard Keynes uh, theories of employment and money. (laughs) Yep. Yep. <laughs> and we couldn't go anywhere without saying Ray Bradbury's yeah. Fahrenheit 451, yep. which is all about books and fires. Mm. So Olivia, now when Olivia gets away from the kidnappers, she wants to find Hannah. Mm. And it's sort of something that she picks up from Hannah, mm. three little code words that she finds mm. uh, a complete other world in. Mm. And these little code words were Red Riding Hood, mm. which took us into... Fairy tales. Yep. The darker side of fairy tales. Yeah. And somebody called Carabos. Yes, that's the. Um, <laughs> she's more well known as Maleficent, obviously, because of Disney and things like that. But Carabos is the original name of uh, the Wicked Fairy in Sleeping Beauty. And here, Carabos is the one who actually kind of organises everything in the yeah. communi- ha- community hacking section yes. of the, the, the sub of the um, society. Um, anything, this is a quote from Mary's book, anything can be hacked if it's governed by rules. Hacking just means getting around those rules without breaking the whole thing or getting caught. And you've given us a few words and mm. terminologies, dead drops and dry cleaning mm. involved in the hacking and finding spaces that are safe. Mm. And you can find those with pictures of pigs. Now, is this all part of your... Com- your no, com- that's not imagination, actually. Um, that's actually straight out of uh, 
Chinese hackers um, in the real world. They the the pig thing is that um, it's picked up by the the scanning software as being naked flesh because of the color, and um, so it's it's sort of censored in China. So you can tell whether yeah Chinese hackers have this huge code of images that they use like um pictures of rubber ducks are the way they talk about Tiananmen Square and all of this kind of thing that it's just this language the censors can't stop well sort of here we have this language in the in in uh, the video area mm. but in reality there's the illegal market mm. and another quote Sam can get just about anything drugs passwords swipe cards signal blocking fabric mm -hmm. and it's with Sam that Olivia strikes up this friendship mm. and they run away together they run away into the outskirts mm -hmm. and uh, well I'm not going to tell you whether they find Hannah <laughs> or not you'll have to find that out yeah. so we we start with Olivia from she's an optimistic girl you know mm. here she is kidnapping and she's very pleased that the kidnappers have supplied supplied her a lid on her bucket for the toilet <laughs> <laughs> and she becomes a very demonstrative girl mm. who contemplates self-harm, mm. murder and arson, but begins to have feelings herself. Mm. This is another quote from Mary's book. She has been a child heiress and a kidnapped victim, a high school rebel, a factory girl, outskirter scavenger, sometime baker, and now a civic infiltrator. <laughs> so it, there's quite a bit of action in this book. Mm and uh, lots of things to think about, uh, especially when we meet young Etch. Mm. Now, this is a young kid who'd received artificial organs mm. as hers were harvested for wealthy. Mm -hmm. And um, Etch says, love never saved anyone. And mm. Olivia's answers quietly, in my experience, it's the only thing that ever does. <laughs> oh. So, Mary, look, along with all of this, you know, we mm. have this book set in the future but what I was amazed at mm -hmm. is there's no nut allergies <laughs> <laughs> oh I wish that that could be the way in the future I have a severe nut allergy myself so. okay. <laughs> because one of their tradable commodities were yeah. peanut nut peanut yeah. butter <laughs> yeah no well again that's that was actually one of the the things I wanted to sort of put distance between myself and my characters so it was something that could never possibly be mine um yeah I guess um I didn't really think about where the people with nut allergies went, I guess because it's such a ruthless society. <laughs> um, in so many other ways, I don't think they're particularly kind to any kind of vulnerable child, up to and including people with food sensitivities. I think it, it I mean, there's this big discussion about the, the concept of survival of the fittest, which of course doesn't mean what most people think it means. And um, and that Olivia is very angry that her society functions so much on this misunderstanding of survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest, you also yeah. say books survive better than more perishable media, yeah. uh, better than music and film recordings. And one of the reasons really is they don't need electricity to power them. Yeah. And through Mary... Um, Borsellino's book Thrive, we, we get a whole idea of her own feelings about mm -hmm. literature, about how tragedy should have a little bit of um, pathos in them, <laughs> how um, happy endings don't have to happen. Yeah. Uh, Baldurizing, is it? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of feelings about it gets a bad rap 
I think. But one of the things I did learn about was Lost Horizon by James Hilton was the yeah. first mass market it paperback. Was. Yep. See, you can learn things <laughs> by science fiction. Have yep. your imagination stretched yep. and, and learn things too. Yep. So Mary, Mary mm -hmm. Borsellino, thank you very much. Um, thrive, as, as, as we said, set in the future. Yep. Published by Clandestine yep. Press. And I believe you've got some copies oh, that you can give yes. away as well. Uh, thank you. <laughs> if anybody's interested, mm. um, Lindy Cameron at Plant Clandestine Press has sort of mm. said, yeah, ring in, get your address, we'll, she'll send us a, you yep. out a copy And of I'm Thrive. happy to sign them. Lindy and I can meet up and I can scribble your name on them if you want. <laughs> there you go. So if you'd like to ring in for a copy, do so now, 94198377. We always like people ringing in. Ah, oh, yes. But Especially freebies. Freebies, <laughs> indeed, just to let us know what you think about the interviews. But, Jan, did you know that it's not a conspiracy theory if enough people believe it to be true? And by reading Marilia Meehan's Five Ways to Be Famous Now you can actually learn the real reason behind the death of Princess Di. Oh. <laughs> no, it's, there's, it's quite plausible. So, Marilia, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you. Now, I may have misled the listener a little in my introduction. Princess Di is not a central feature necessarily of this novel, but I want to come back to her at the end because we're actually on a cruise ship. Where are we? Well, we've just set sail from Hobart on our way to Antarctica aboard um, a replica of the Queen Mary, a luxury cruise ship. Now, you were telling me off air that the, the inspiration for this sort of plot theme came from? Well, I heard Clive Palmer uh, in one of his more lucid moments <laughs> talking about uh, how he was going to build a replica Titanic and that, that conjured up for me this idea of um, enormous wealth that the corporate players have and how they can play with it and manipulate people. Because that, that corporate wealth sort of becomes a feature later on. But uh, we're now on board this ship and there are ulterior motives amongst some of the characters. How much can you tell us about uh, some of the ulterior motives that are there? Well, uh, a handful of the characters have won raffle tickets and some of them think it must have been a Coles checkout docket or something. They don't remember entering any raffle ticket, but they're not going to say no when they win the, the prize. So they don't raise any questions and find themselves aboard. But there's murder afoot, shall we say? Well, yes. A, a plot or a scheme to murder more than just one. And these people are unwittingly involved in this master plot. They've all been carefully selected and they all have connections uh, to each other in their past and when they first glimpse the others who've won the tickets, they wonder who's brought them together and why. So it's sort of, in some ways, it's an Agatha Christie, or a tribute to an Agatha Christie sort of uh, murder, most foul sort of thing. But again, that's not the motivation for the novel, because we can start now looking at this uh, ensemble, as you call it, of characters who are all, in many ways, feature 
characters in their own right, very strong personalities. For example, we have me. There's an unknown, sort of unnamed narrator, but uh, very strong personality because um, me is a bit of a pyromaniac. It's not only the fire events I organise, I make sure I'm first to ring triple O within minutes of starting each fire. I want to give them a sporting chance. I, want, I watch the rush of fire trucks and stir to their deeply arousing sirens. All this just for me. And then, respectable citizen that I am, I don my yellow volunteer's uniform and man the hoses that battle the blaze I started. The newspaper clippings and web downloads I officially file under social history fires <laughs> these a malevolent character is me and another way to be famous in a in a twisted way he wants to be famous he can't actually admit he's done the fires but gets a great thrill out of reading about them but i mean it's very true there are personalities like this yes yeah, psychologically there. true yeah, yeah that, yes that do that sort of thing but again that desire is it a desire for celebrity or um all the characters are obsessives of one kind or another. I think perhaps that's why you say they strike you as fairly strong because yes. I am, am fascinated by obsessive characters, whether they're obsessed by conspiracy theories or fires. Or because you've then got Captain Kirsten McKinley. And now how did she get to be Captain? Yes, well, she's nothing like Clive Palmer, is she? <laughs> <laughs> She uh, has got enough money to do whatever she likes and she wants, she has a yen to carve a metre square in the Antarctic ice and to go for a swim in there. She's obsessed about germs and she's got this idea that would be a clean way to swim. But her husband is Parson Paul. Parson Paul, yes. She doesn't present herself to the passengers as married because she feels that a single woman, a captain, will have more gravitas rather than being Mrs Parson Pawley. So she keeps him a secret, but he's on board for his very convenient knowledge of poisons and doctoring skills. Yes, he's a doctor as well, mm. a parson and a doctor, but his obsession is a sort of fundamentalism of a very warped kind. Yeah, so he has a um, theory that explains everything and the coming Armageddon and... Uh, the Chinese will release all their robots who they've stored like the terracotta soldiers underground. They'll rise up. Now, amongst of the women that are on board who have won these raffle tickets, Lily Zielinski, Ariadne Jones and Shanty Bounty. Lily Zielinski, who's she? Lily Zielinski is um, a journalist in... In search of a story. No one will answer her calls anymore because she fell for a CIA um, concoction. Concoction, yes. And um, so, released for useful idiots, as the CIA put it. So we've got this notion of uh, the corruption of journalism. You've got Ariadne Jones, who's got a particular foible. Ariadne has met Princess Diana and it has changed her life. Princess Diana and her have a secret which I shall not reveal. But that's one of the reasons why <laughs> she's been invited on board. Um, but also Ariadne's um, approach to um, sort of uh, keeping the memory of Di alive 
What does she do? Um, I'm sorry. She's putting she her her appearance. Oh yes, yes. Um, yeah, she literally resembles Princess Diana and spends a lot of money having um, enhancements, facial enhancements. Yeah. And Shanty Bounty. Uh, she's a yoga teacher, um, uh, but no matter how much she meditates, she can't get rid of certain fantasies about revenge, about what happened to her in her past. And what links them all is their past, but we can't give that away because that's sort of part of the, the plot that the uh, listener or the reader of, um, is going to have to find out uh, for themselves. But then also we've got Monica Frequin, who's been invited on board as a guest. Monica yes. Frequin has a lovely writer's geek. She's the, the keynote speaker. And her titles include things like Sea of Love, Love of the Sea, Lover from the Sea, Seasick, A Wave Swells and... A wave lifts. <laughs> well, because she finds that le readers like the same but different in an author. Now, but now, the reason uh, that you've put all of these people together is not necessarily to tell a murder mystery story. Uh, it's not necessarily to tell uh, a sort of romance on board ship a la uh, The Love Boat or anything like that. This is where we get to the really wicked part. You're taking the mickey out of um, a lot of the uh, attitudes, social conventions, personalities that we find that we could probably associate with our own behaviour. I mean, let us start with the uh, unnamed narrator, me, who wants to be a writer. And you've made certain suggestions about writing groups. What's going on there? Um, he... Uh... He only goes to the writing groups um, to tell his story, his particular... It's an indirect way to be famous. Um, what, a lot of the people uh, would not be famous in the uh, Hollywood sense. That's not necessarily what they want, but um, we're all famous to our cat, I think is a Buddhist saying. And um, people who don't realise that that there are so many people to please, um, find themselves um, with that thwarted desire. But at the reading groups, he can read the same story again and again and be clapped. And applauded, but he's then got to keep moving between reading groups <laughs> yeah, to get yeah. the same recognition. Mm -hmm. at, at the other end of the scale, you've got Monica Frequent, who's got her novels out, but um, her reputation is a little in tatters. Her carefully curated image um, is extremely stressful for her to maintain. Never an unrehearsed word until she's caught out. So be careful if you become a successful writer because your <laughs> reputation then... Well, you, they, you wouldn't come on this because this is live. She wouldn't come on this. <laughs> exactly. It's, you never know what question you could be asked No, next. she'd be rifling through her notes. <laughs> and she comes, she comes apart on this cruise, so to speak, um, because she's been asked to give a talk about writing about food um, but um, if we look at her preparation, it was over two bottles of um, 
good claret, shall we say. Was it red or white wine that she was drinking? I think um, red, she can't recall. <laughs> um, but rather drunkenly one night she had concocted this current draft, an ad hoc compilation of her thoughts on her own diet, excluding the alcohol. It had been a delightful two-bottle piece of writing in which she had dropped her shield, failed to take the protective measures of always prefacing her every statement with, as Mr X says. So she wakes up in the morning thinking, oh, I must have finished, and so she gives this speech and comes undone um so and are we able to tell what happens to monica at the end as in um well the um the acclaim she gets right at the very end is a very high price at a very high price. at a very high price but mm. still she is lauded mm. um but again you're taking the the mickey out of that somewhat uh Interestingly, I mean, you've got hubby Paul, um, who, um, how shall we say, you're taking the mickey out of religion a little, have you not felt the breath of the dragon? This is from one of his sermons. His coat of arms, the red dragon of Satan, is described in Revelations 12.3. He is tolerant of false religions, wanting to unite everything from papism to Wicca and Islam under his cloak. He brazenly displays his coat of arms, the red dragon of Satan, the body of a leopard, mouth of a bear, eyes of a man. His family guards blatantly wear bright red, red and have bearskin helmets. Fundamentalism is coming uh, under your watchful gaze there as well. So are you deliberately taking um, the mickey out of uh, institutions and attitudes? Well, I think it just reflects my reading. I like to read um, minority opinions and it, then then these opinions become those of my characters. Um, so rather than setting out to make fun of something, I'm interested in the strange desires that people have and uh, exploring these strange desires that we have as individuals uh, is more fascinating to me if they have one of these minority opinions. Minority, but they're eccentric and extreme. But this brings us then uh, to back to Princess Di, and we're going to have to handle this one carefully, and, and this notion of corporate intrigue, because this sort of becomes the bete noire of um, the novel in many ways, which explains how it is that Princess Di uh, was murdered. But you're, you are virtually looking at corporate control and power, um, which is quite plausible in the end here, and you're taking the mickey out of that. Yes, it, it's assumed. Um, I'm not brave enough to deal with it directly, as um, uh, Mary, Mary has done. I assume it's there, and the effects are... Uh, often glamorous appearance that these wicked people have. But it's, it's very real and believable that uh, people with uh, corporate power and money have um, an influence uh, in society by shifting their money around. People's wealth, people's celebrity is often based on the control. I mean, the arguments in current political uh, circles at the moment... Uh, Hillary Clinton, or Trump's claim, is uh, controlled by corporate money that is making her do what they want. And it is uh, 
plausible how our society is operating. Yeah, well, I recently happened to see um, a film called The Rum Diaries, which is about based on a um, uh, a book written a while ago by Hunter S. Thompson, and he said he's finally found the connection between shiny banking plaques and starving children. So there's a lot of uh, corporate intrigue, there's a lot of almost social satire, very strong characters. The book is Five Ways to be Famous Now, the author, Marilia Meehan, and it is a transit lounge release. And I had Mary Borsellino and her book Thrive, and where you might have had um, Princess Di, <laughs> Thrive has got Frida Kahlo. So there oh, you go. Well, famous <laughs> yes. personalities. Oh, but you're going to have to read this to find out how it is that <laughs> Princess Di was actually... Well, Frida Kahlo, why was she quoted? Well, you'll have to read Thrive. Indeed. So there you go. Well, more reading to be done, more chat with authors and next week. And another show next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.